Luke chapter 22, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, named Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Skip down, if you would, to verse number 47. Verse number 47 Jesus has been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas and the soldiers arrive. Verse 47, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Betrayal is such a horrible word. And we see the word betrayal and betray over and over again at this time in Jesus' life. A dictionary on the internet defined betrayal as the act of disappointing a person's trust, hopes, or expectations. The act of disappointing a person's trust. Someone wrote the statement, the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. It comes from friends and loved ones. Betrayal is the act of somebody that you'd have least expected to disappoint, to let you down. To betray you. Betrayal's um, been around as long as there's been human beings, I guess. But it doesn't make it any easier to grapple with. David had experiences in his life where he struggled deeply with betrayal. In Psalm 41, verse 9, David said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread. 
hath lifted up his heel against me. It wasn't my enemy that did it. It wasn't someone that despises me that did it. It was my friend. We've, we've shared meals together. I fed him from my own, wardrobe, from my own uh, uh, kitchen. It was my friend that lifted up his heel against me. In another psalm, Psalm 55, David was praying and he said, Give ear to my prayer, O God. I mourn in my complaint. My heart is sore pained within me. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. What was it that so pained David's heart to the depths? What was it that caused David to go to God and say, God, would you hear my prayer? I mourn in my complaint. What was it that was so heart shattering that David longed for wings like a dove where he could get away and find some peace? It was betrayal. He went on to say, for it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that didn't magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. We walked in the house of God in company. They went to church together. They had each other to their homes. They, they counseled one another. It was a dear friend that ripped my heart out, that crushed my spirit. Someone whom I would have least expected it betrayed me. Oh, God, help. Hear me. As I mourn the betrayal of a trusted friend. David had experienced what it meant for a friend to cut him deep to the heart. And so we've come to a time in Jesus Christ's life where Jesus Christ is going to experience what David experienced. And the bottom line up front, the bluff of our message this morning is that betrayal is a deep attack that wounds. It wounds to the very depths of a person's soul. The betrayal of a trusted friend. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had someone that you trusted? Someone that you, you had confidence in? Someone you, you, you would have never expected anything to have hurt you from that person. They were a a close, personal friend. And then they betrayed you. You couldn't believe it. When you found out who had done what was done, when you found out who had wrote the letter, who had slipped in to see the, the boss and made his accusations, when you found out who it was that told other people, when you found out where it came from, It was your friend that you trusted. The wound of betrayal is deeper than most wounds. 
It's the wound that a spouse feels when they found out their spouse had not been faithful. It's a deep wound, a wound of betrayal. Have you ever betrayed somebody? Have you ever had a close friend that trusted you, had confidence in you, would bet their bottom dollar on you, would trust you with intimate secrets of their own struggles? They trusted you beyond measure. They, you had their utmost confidence. And then you betrayed them. And when you were found out, you felt so guilty. You felt you had caused an infliction on a friend's heart so deep that you could never regain their confidence. You could never regain their trust. You could never make up for what you did. You had betrayed them. That's the kind of stuff that this story from the life of Jesus Christ deals with. It deals with the deep, deep hurt of betrayal. Luke gives just a brief uh, statement of context in the first three verses that we read a moment ago. Uh, Luke records that they are uh, at, they're approaching the Feast of Unleavened Bread called Passover. Uh, They had been in Jerusalem. Jesus and his apostles have been in Jerusalem for about a week now. And um, and they're getting really close to the to the observance of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was one of the major feasts, if not the most the, the most major of feasts that Israel uh, participated in every year under the instruction of God. This particular feast, every male was required to come. So wherever you were as a Jewish family, wherever you'd moved to, however far you were from Jerusalem. You were required as a male, you were required to be present in Jerusalem. So you can imagine the city is bursting at its seams. And we have talked about that this, this week of Passover week leading up to Passover. And uh, it is just, I mean, people are in tents and little lean-tos everywhere. I mean, it's crowded all over and stretching out from Jerusalem toward Bethlehem and toward Bethany and in every direction. And there are people everywhere. Hundreds of thousands of people are there. And, and, and they're, they're nearing the observance of Passover. And the chief priest, verse 2 says, and the scribes sought. Notice the word how. If you don't, know, if you don't, if you don't emphasize the word how, then, then the verse doesn't make any sense to you. Because the verse ends by saying they feared the people. The chief, the chief priests and the scribes thought how they might kill him. That they're going to kill him is a given. That they're going to kill him has already been determined. They have already been trying to kill him. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and the religious body of Jerusalem has long since decided we're going to kill Jesus. We, got, we have to get rid of him. But how are we going to do this? Because they feared the people. See, at Passover week, this is, this is the time where Jerusalem is, has uh, overstretched its capacity to the greatest extent. Many week of the year. This is, this is a, a huge deal. 
And the Jewish people were hard for Rome to maintain. To keep peace in Israel was a challenge for the Roman authorities that were governing Israel. And so we find out that Pilate's in town. We find out that Herod's in town. I mean, every Roman leader of any significance is in town because they know if there's going to be trouble, it's going to be Passover week. This is the week that the Jews are the most difficult to contain and to be able to supervise. And so the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders, that they, they know they're going to kill Jesus, but how are we going to pull this off without creating a riot, without creating a mob scene? They are between a rock and a hard place. They've got to get rid of Jesus. And yet, how could they possibly get rid of Jesus? Particularly during this time when Jesus is flocked with people wanting to hear every word he has to say. People that have come from all over Israel for Passover week. Jesus had been out all over Israel for the last couple of years, preaching and teaching in every village and town. These people had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They're all coming to Jerusalem. They hear that Lazarus, just a few days ago, was raised from the dead after four days in the tomb. His own sister said, no, no, don't, 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 don't do this. His corpse stinks by this time. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, a crowning miracle of Jesus Christ's ministry. And word spread and everyone's wanting to find Lazarus, touch him, see him, hear him. This four days old dead man living again. Never before has this ever happened. How are the chief priests, how is the Sanhedrin going to pull this off? without creating a mob in Jerusalem. If they try to arrest Jesus Christ and get rid of Him, there's going to be a riot like Jerusalem has never seen. Rome is already on edge with all their leaders there watching everything that's going on. Rome will step in and say to the Sanhedrin, you are dismissed. We are no longer supervising you. We are now ruling you with a rod of iron. And they didn't want to lose their power. How are we going to do this? Because they feared the people that were there in Jerusalem. How can this be done? And then something significant occurred. You see, Jesus Christ every day was in public. Every day, the end of... Chapter 22, Jesus Christ every day came to the temple platform. Every day he was teaching. He had crowds around him. At night, he disappeared. There are no streetlights. When the sun goes down and all is dark, they can't find him. They don't know where he is. He disappears into the Mount of Olives, into the, into the forest. They, can't find, they don't know where he is. And how to pull this off? And then something happened. All of a sudden, when they were meeting together, many believe in Caiaphas' house, strategizing, plotting. How are we going to do this? How can we make this happen? All of a sudden, verse number 3, Satan entered into Judas. And verse number 4, 
he, Judas, went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. All of a sudden, Judas shows up at Caiaphas' house. He's one of the twelve apostles. What's he doing at Caiaphas' house? After all the animosity between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, Judas shows up at Caiaphas' house. And Judas says, how much is he worth to you? What would you give me if I turn him over to you in secret? What if I find a way to let you know where he is in the middle of the night when nobody else is around? What's it worth to you? And verse number five says they were glad. This is the solution they were waiting for. This is the solution that they couldn't find. One of Jesus' own apostles who knows his habits, who knows where he goes at night, who knows what his, what his uh, travel habits are. One of his own twelve coming to us and saying, I will tell you where he is when nobody else is there. What's it worth to you? And so, they make a degree, a, a deal. And Judas struck a deal to turn Jesus Christ over in secrecy so he could be murdered. As a result of the religious leaders in Israel. What do we know about Judas? What do we know about Judas and, and, just, and his relationship to Jesus? Well, we know that he was one of the apostles that Jesus chose, according to Mark 3. We know that Judas, according to what we read in Scripture, he never acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. He was not like Peter when, when Jesus... Uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Judas never proclaimed that, as far as the scriptural record concerns. He never called Jesus anything except teacher, rabbi. Never called him Lord. Never called him Christ. Never called him Messiah. We know that nothing in the scripture record leads us to believe that Judas was particularly close to Jesus personally. Every list of the twelve apostles, Judas is listed dead last. And the lists seem to appear in some kind of an order of importance or order of relationship. The ones that were always at the top of the list are the ones that we always read about being with Jesus. Honoring, acknowledging who Jesus is. Judas was always dead last. We know that Jesus knew from the beginning, according to John 6, who didn't believe in him and who was going to betray him. Jesus knew. From the very beginning, we know that Jesus, that Judas rather was influenced by Satan. Our text tells us that that uh, Satan had entered into Judas. And Judas is now operating under the direct control and influence of Satan. We know uh, later on Thursday evening in the upper room when they were when Jesus was teaching and Judas was there, the Bible says that that Judas Put it in, or, or that Satan put it in Judah's heart. Go now and tip off the Sanhedrin. We know Judas was influenced by Satan. We know that in the upper room, Jesus had, had warned and commented 
about the upcoming betrayal. Judas knew Jesus knew what he was going to do. And we know that right to the very end in the garden when Judas arrived, Jesus held out an olive branch to Judas. When Judas kissed him on the cheek. Well, the stage is set for the drama. Act one is the plan. We've already looked at some of this already this morning, these last few moments. But what causes a betrayal? Well, what causes someone to be? If you've ever betrayed someone, what caused you to do that? If someone has ever betrayed you, what caused them to come to the point after being your friend? After being your, your, a close relationship with you, what happened to that close relationship that brought you or brought somebody against you to the point of betrayal? What hurt can justify one to betray another? When does a person finally reach the point where they feel entitled to go behind the back of a friend? And betray them when they know that that friend still has confidence in them. Judas has been with Jesus Christ for for a couple of years. He's been traveling with him, listening to him, watching him, examining his every move. He's been watching the miracles that he performed, listening to the messages that he preached. Judas has been right there with Jesus Christ. For over two years. But looking back now, in hindsight, looking back to the Word of God and reading the story of the life of Christ and reading of Judas and his actions. And more importantly, noticing that Judas never acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That Judas never, in the Scripture record, seemed particularly close to Jesus. We can only imagine, and this is my imagination. This is not taught directly in the Bible. This is only my imaginations. Take it for what it's worth. I can only imagine what was going through Judas' mind when he heard Jesus teaching and preaching. I can only imagine what Judas thought as he listened to Jesus. And Well, I don't agree with that. Well, I, I don't agree with that. I can only imagine what disagreements Judas kept hidden in his heart when Jesus didn't do what Judas thought he should have done. I can only imagine what continued to grow in Judas' heart week after week, month after month, year after year. Did Judas expect Jesus to accomplish what Judas thought Jesus ought to do? Judas thought Jesus ought to ride in town on a white stallion. And, and slay all the Roman army. And, and set up his kingdom as a mighty conquering warrior. That's what Judas thought. That's what most Jews thought. That's what they expected of their Messiah. A Messiah who would conquer Rome and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Was Judas caught up in that? And as, as the weeks and months rolled forward, Jesus didn't seem like he was going to do that. And then at odd times, Jesus would teach things that didn't fit that. 
I think Jesus actually told them they were going to go to Jerusalem and Jesus was going to be put to death. A Messiah put to death? Could it be that Judas continually was faced with the reality that Jesus wasn't who he thought he was? And Jesus didn't do what Judas thought Jesus ought to do. And it continued to roll on week after week after week. Could it be that Judas had imagined riding visibly into a glorious kingdom and being Judas, one of the twelve, would have a prestigious leadership role in the newly established kingdom? And it has become pretty obvious after what happened in Jericho and what has happened in the last few days up until Tuesday night. It seems pretty obvious that Judas had been wrong about Jesus. He was not who he thought he was. But what pushed Judas over the line? What was it that made it so painful for Judas that he finally said, that's it? And he showed up unannounced at Caiaphas' house that night and said, what? Is it worth to you to find out where Jesus will be in secret? What pushed Judas over the line? Well, I wonder if, uh, if the Bible didn't make that really clear, but not in Luke. Luke doesn't tell us what pushed him over the line. Luke just announces that Judas showed up. Satan had come into Judas' heart. And Judas showed up at Caiaphas' house. But Matthew, Mark, and John record something that happened that Judas was pointed out for. There were two times since they arrived from Jericho that a woman anointed the body of Jesus with oil, a very fragrant and expensive oil. One of them happened six days before Passover. The other one happened two days before Passover. John records only the one that happened six days before Passover. When they arrived from Jericho, before the triumphant entry on Sunday, they were at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Mary broke open a, a, a expensive vase of, of fragrant oil and, and Mary anointed Jesus' feet with his extravagantly expensive perfume. And Judas, John tells us, Judas said, what a waste. What a waste. And Jesus stood up for Mary and put Judas in his place and announced that she was anointing his body for burial. That was six days before Passover. That would have been, if this was Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, it would have been last, probably Friday, just a few days ago. But then, on this very night, after they had left the Jerusalem platform, and he preached the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives as they were going back to Bethany, that, uh, that very evening, or perhaps lunch the next day, we're not sure, 
which would mean that since last Friday, the sting of Jesus' rebuke and the public shame of Judas has been rolling in Judas' heart since last Friday. And now, on on this occasion, two days before Passover, they were at the home of Simon the leper. And at the home of Simon the leper, an unnamed woman, this is recorded in Matthew and Mark, an unnamed woman anointed not the feet, but the head of Jesus. And the Bible says that some of the disciples said, well, this is a waste. We could, we could, that money could have been used for something else. And Jesus again rebuked them and stood up for that unnamed woman that anointed the head of Jesus Christ two days before Passover. I wonder if that didn't jerk the scab that had barely begun to heal since last Friday. And, and Judas is feeling all of the shame. Maybe even Judas led the multiple disciples on that occasion, two days before Passover. The Bible doesn't say, it just says some disciples. Whatever, I wonder if that wasn't the, the straw that broke the camel's back. That wasn't the step beyond the limit. And Judas, again, Reminded, at least reminded, if not repeated, at least reminded of the sting of the public rebuke that Jesus rebuked him publicly for what he said. And Judas said, that's enough. That's when Judas went into Caiaphas' house that night or early the next morning. It was in the aftermath of the, the, the anointing of the body of Jesus Christ the second time for burial. It was immediately after that that Judas went to Caiaphas' house and said, What will it take? What will you give me? What's it worth to you? And entered into the deal with the Sanhedrin. Judas now completely in league with Satan, burning with, with the rebuke of Jesus Christ for what he had said. He goes and he strikes the deal. Verse number five said that the Sanhedrin, they were glad and they covenanted to him to give, to give him money. And he promised and he sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. What does it take to push a person over the line? Is it years of bent up frustration and disappointment? Is it situation after situation that they were unwilling to sit down and talk about, but they rather just buried it in their heart and got more bitter and more bitter against a person that hadn't a clue, a person that did not know? What is it to, when you're in a situation like that, you find your heart growing bitter and what pushes you over the line? To betray that person. What pushes you to the point where you say, I don't deserve this. I'm going to find a way to hurt the person who has hurt my heart. It was a plan. It was a despicable plan. It was a plan that no doubt 
It's a long time in the making. But skip down to verse 47 and look at act number two. We've got to skip ahead in act number two. We've got to skip by the time in the upper room. We'll, we'll be doing that on Sunday mornings. But in order to be able to weave this drama of betrayal together, we need to skip to verse 47 and see the second act of the play. Verse number 47 of our text, while he yet spake, that was when Jesus was talking to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane about the fact they couldn't stay awake and pray. They kept going to sleep. While he yet spake, behold, a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them. So here comes Judas leading a multitude. He had gone and tipped off the, uh, the Sanhedrin that night after he was, after that, that anointing of the body the second time that week. He goes and he tips off the Sanhedrin. In all likelihood, he told the Sanhedrin, he's in the upper room. I know where he is. There's nobody around but just the apostles. Come, but come quickly. No doubt the, the Sanhedrin had already made arrangements with the Roman guard because of the plan they had struck, the deal they'd struck with, with Judas. And so the Sanhedrin would have immediately let the Romans know. And so uh, through the city of Jerusalem comes this, this Roman guard with the Sanhedrin, all led by Judas. They go up to the upper room and he's not there. You read carefully all the accounts, you find out that, uh, that somebody from that house came running to the Garden of Gethsemane and got there too late to warn Jesus. And so perhaps when Judas got to the upper room and said, that is, he was just here a few minutes ago. Perhaps Judas, knowing Jesus' plans, noticed where he prays, or maybe even the owner of the home where they were meeting for that last Passover meal in the upper room, the second story room. Maybe they said, yeah, they left a few minutes ago. They headed over to the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know how they, they knew that he had moved from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, but the, we do know Judas led them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, after Jesus had been some lengthy period of time in prayer, all of a sudden, you could hear them coming. You could hear the rustle of the, of the, the people walking, the multitude of people walking. You could hear maybe the clanging, the, the rattling of their, their, their clubs and their swords. And then around the corner, and all of a sudden, there's Judas in the front, and Judas walks up to Jesus Christ. The people that are going to arrest him don't know which one they're going to arrest. They... Don't know which one is Jesus. So Judas had given them a sign and said, The one I go up and kiss on the cheek, that'll be the one who's Jesus. That's the one you want to arrest. And so Judas leads them into the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew and Mark both tell us that Judas walked up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Luke doesn't say he kissed him, but tells us what happened when Judas had kissed him. Luke tells us in verse number 48 that Jesus spoke to Judas. Jesus had something to say to Judas. Jesus spoke straight to the issue. He looked at G Judas and he said, Judas, betrayest thou me with a kiss? Let me read that again. Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And Jesus, in asking that question, made three statements. 
three statements that Judas has to reckon with. That Judas has to deal with in his heart. Jesus said to Judas, I am the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite messianic title. It comes from the book of Daniel. When Jesus said to Judas, Betrayest thou the Son of Man, Jesus was establishing authoritatively, I am who I told you that I was. What you're doing is against God. What you're doing is against your Messiah. You are betraying the Messiah of Israel. Judas has to reckon with that. He has to go home thinking about that. The second thing Jesus Christ stated is that after all we've been through together, Matthew, I believe, is the account that, that records Jesus calling him friend. After all we've been together, Judas, after all that you've seen, after all that you've heard, after undeniable proofs that I am who I claimed I am, I befriended you, Judas. You're betraying me. Judas needed to grapple with the reality that he was betraying the best friend he ever had in life. And the third statement Jesus made is that you would betray me with such an intimate token of friendship. We don't kiss today like people kissed in that culture, in that society. A kiss today is, is uh, usually between very close family members or people that are married. There's romanticism. A kiss was a common greeting between friends that appreciated one another. A kiss on the cheek, a little peck on the cheek. Some parts of the world it's still, still done today, probably most of the world. A little peck on the cheek. It was a, it was a token of companionship, of friendship. Of appreciation. Judas, that's how you identified me to my enemies. It wasn't enough to just come and point and say, the guy over there with the scarlet thing around his neck. It wasn't enough to just walk over and say, here, this one, and tap him on the shoulder. You chose... The most intimate token of friendship, a kiss on the cheek to identify who I am to my enemies. Judas, you would betray your Messiah after all we've been through with a kiss on the cheek. And then Jesus Christ turned to the Sanhedrin in verse number 52. He had healed, you know, the, the, some of the disciples, you know, Peter pulled out his sword and whopped off the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus said, hey, enough of that. Just, you know, he picked up the ear, he planted it back on his head and, and uh, healed it. And then in verse number 52, Jesus Christ had something to say to his enemies. 
Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Do you really need swords and clubs? A stave was a club. You really think you need swords and clubs to arrest me? Haven't you stood and watched me every day on the temple platform this week? You could have come and got me any day this week. You think you need swords and clubs to be able to capture me in the middle of the night in a garden? You cowards. You that are afraid of people. Afraid of what Israel will think of you. Afraid of what Israel might do to you. If they knew what you were doing. You could have taken me any time you wanted But you come as cowards in the middle of the night with swords and clubs to take me at a time and place where no one will know what you've done. Jesus Christ wasn't cruel. He wasn't mean. He wasn't unkind. I mean, he he healed the servant's ear. He simply was telling the truth to Judas and telling the truth to the Sanhedrin. Because you know something? Knowing the truth sets the conscience in motion. People are guilty when someone tells them the truth. That's why if you read your Bible carefully, you'll find out that God always tells the truth. Samaritan woman, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. You've had a few of them, haven't you? And the guy you're shacking up with now is not even your What was Jesus doing? Until people are told the truth, the conscience does not go into action convicting them and making them guilty. Jesus always told the truth not to be unkind, not to be mean-spirited, He told the truth because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And if people don't think they're sinning, the Holy Spirit has nothing to convict them of. And so God always tells people the truth, whether it's easy to hear or hard to hear. Whether it's difficult or whether it's easy. God tells people the truth. And Jesus told Judas the truth. You're betraying the Messiah whom you have spent two years with, and you're betraying me with a token of friendship. Judas is going to spend a very difficult night because Jesus was kind enough to tell him the truth about what he had done. And Jesus said to the Sanhedrin what the truth was so the Spirit of God could convict them of their sin against God. Jesus always tells the truth. Let's close with one final act. One final act in this betrayal story, this drama of betrayal. But to do so, I've got to get you to turn over to Matthew because Luke doesn't record it. But I think it's important in the context of what we've seen for you to see the, the third and final act in the drama. 
And it's recorded in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. At the end of the second act, they led Jesus Christ in the middle of the night to Caiaphas' home. And there the Sanhedrin met in an illegal trial in the middle of the night to secure trumped-up false charges so they could turn him over to the Romans the next morning. We're picking up in Matthew chapter 27 in the morning where they're taking Jesus to the Roman authorities for him to be tried by the Romans and put to death. We don't know if Judas followed the crowd, the multitude, to Caiaphas' house. We don't know whether Judas was present in the mockery of a Jewish trial that occurred. What we do know is that in the morning, when Jesus was tied up and bound, and they were leading him from Caiaphas' house to Pilate's, Judas saw it. He saw Jesus bound up. He seemed to have been around enough to hear the outcome of the Jewish trial. Matthew chapter 27 verse 3 says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, he saw Jesus bound. Verse 2, the previous verse said he was bound and being led away, being delivered to Pontius Pilate. Judas saw what was happening. He saw that Jesus Christ was heading off to the Roman authorities. All of a sudden, all of the, the guilt, all of the conviction that had been going on since he planted that betrayal kiss on Jesus' cheek, during those hours up until this moment, Judas has been wrestling in his soul and wrestling in his soul. What have you done? And he comes to the conclusion and the understanding he had betrayed an innocent man. That was a crime in and of itself in Jewish jurisprudence, as anyone would expect. It is illegal to lie about a person who is innocent so that they will become guilty in the eyes of the court. And so Judas, filled with, with guilt, the Bible says in verse 3, he repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned. In that I betrayed the innocent blood. Judas knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows there's nothing worthy of being condemned to death in Jesus' life. Riddled with guilt. What he does not do, he does not go to Jesus, who he's watching being led in front of him. He does not fall on his knees and say, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. I, really, I believe you are who you claim. I've sinned against you, Jesus. Please forgive me of my sin. I trust you. No, he didn't do that. He didn't go to Jesus. He didn't say anything to Jesus. But all of a sudden, those 30 pieces of silver in his pockets felt like they weighed a ton. Filled with remorse and filled with guilt. He ran to the temple 
The term used in the text of the temple is is not the general word for the whole temple mount complex, but it was the word for the holy place and the holy of holies. He went through the courtyard of the Gentiles. He went through the courtyard of the women. He went right up to the doors that enter into the holy place. He can't go in there. Only priests can go in there. But there he found some, some of the chief priests and some of the elders. And he said to them, I've done wrong. I've sinned. Jesus is innocent. I have pronounced him guilty. I have sinned against an innocent man. And the reaction of the Sanhedrin, the august religious leaders of Jerusalem and all of Israel. Verse number four ends. And they said, what is that to us? If I could paraphrase that, so what? So what? That's your problem, Judas. These religious leaders have no concern for a guilty person in despair. These religious leaders have no concern for a man who's in agony of soul, filled with guilt, confessing to a crime of witnessing against an innocent man. According to Jewish, Jewish, Jewish prudence, his confession of lying about an innocent man would have required the Sanhedrin to call Jesus back into the Sanhedrin, retrial the case, retry the case to find out if there are enough substantial witnesses, evidences that would justify the guilty verdict that they had pronounced in the middle of the night. They didn't do that. They didn't care about right and wrong. They didn't care about innocence and guilt. They had already made up their mind they're going to kill him. They just couldn't figure out how they were going to do it and not have a riot on their hands. They didn't care about Judas. They had gotten what they wanted. So what, Judas? That's your problem. And Judas in despair. By the way, in in Jewish jurisprudence, if a person did accuse an innocent party of something guilty... Whatever the justice that would have been meted against that person for that crime had they committed it, if it was discovered that the witness had lied, whatever that just judgment was would have been applied to the guilty witness and that witness would have borne the punishment he was trying to get inflicted upon the innocent man. In Jesus' case, that means Judas must die. That's the justice that was being meted out to Jesus for blasphemy in Jewish law. And when the Sanhedrin would have nothing to do with it, with a broken heart, a guilty spirit, not having any way to relieve his heart of the guilt that was that he suffered with through the night. He took the 30 pieces of silver, standing at the open door into the holy place, and he threw it into the holy place. And he went out. And he committed suicide. The Gospel writers said he hung himself. Luke in Acts chapter 1 said his body fell and burst open. Putting the two together creates the likely scenario that 
he hung himself and, and his corpse was left there for a period of time. And finally bloated. And it finally fell from its rope and burst open. Horrible death. You say, but just a minute, preacher, didn't, didn't the Bible say that, that Judas repented? Yes, it does. In verse number 3, he repented himself. However, you have to understand, very important for you to understand, there are two different words in the Greek language translated repent, repented, and repentance in the New Testament. One of them simply means to feel regret for something that had happened. And one of them means to actually turn from the sin that one had committed. Paul used both of them when he wrote to the church at Corinth. You'll remember he said, he said, I wrote you a letter and, it, and you, you guys, it really brought you to a, a position of guilt. And, and I didn't repent for writing the letter, although I did repent when I heard how bad it made you feel. But he said the letter produced a godly sorrow that worked to repentance. And he used a different word. It's translated repent, repent, repentance, but it's from two different Greek words. Paul said, I, reg- I don't regret that I wrote you the letter, although I did regret it when I felt not how bad you felt. But then that letter produced a depth of guilt in your soul that you finally repented of your sin and your life was changed. These two words are important to understand the difference between the two words. Judas did not repent of his sin and trust the Messiah. He merely regretted that he had condemned an innocent man. He still didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He still didn't put his trust in Jesus. He just regretted that he had lied about an innocent man. Uh, Judas could have repented and been saved had he gone to Jesus. But instead he went to the Sanhedrin, expressed his regret, and then killed himself. Now there are two powerful takeaways from this episode in Jesus' life about the, the drama of betrayal. And it's a drama that impacts all of our lives. We are all capable of betraying a close friend. And we are all capable of being betrayed by close friends. What are the two takeaways? Well, if you have betrayed somebody else's trust, understand you ripped their heart out. You did to them something that is more painful than just about anything you could have ever done. Your betrayal revealed to you who you really are. That you are capable of betraying somebody. A betrayed wife cried out. She said, I'm crying because my delusion of who you were has been shattered by the truth of who you are. If you betray someone... You need to understand that what you did is as despicable and hurtful as anything you could ever do. 
And it may seem that there's no way back after what you did and, and that confidence can never be rebuilt, rebuilt. But I can assure you that it can. But only if you don't merely regret what you did and got caught for it. Only if you feel badly enough that you can go to that person and admit to them the depths of what you did and wish to God you'd have never done it and ask them to forgive you for what you did. You see, if we betray a person, we should feel the weight of the guilt of our actions. But just feeling guilt is not sufficient. Our sorrow must lead us to a genuine repentance. And such repentance may involve restitution of making right some things that were caused by what I did when I betrayed. Such repentance will also seek forgiveness. Judas could have been forgiven. Had he gone beyond mere regret, he could have been forgiven, but he didn't. And so read 1 John 1, great passage of Scripture to meditate on if you've ever betrayed someone and think you can never regain their confidence. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because forgiveness is liberating. You can be forgiven. Judas could have been forgiven for the hyenas' crime against the Messiah. He didn't repent. But we can be forgiven. The second takeaway is if you've been betrayed by someone else and your heart is crushed and seemingly beyond repair, please know that you have a God who is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows the agony of soul to have your friend betray you. And you can go to that God when someone has betrayed you. And you can know that the God that you're talking to knows exactly how you feel. And then you can go and read 1 Peter chapter 2 to find out how Jesus Christ reacted to his betrayal. We taught on that a couple of weeks ago when we were getting ready to have the Lord's Supper. And how Jesus Christ responded to the despicable treatment he received at Calvary. And if you've been betrayed, you can you can rebuild that confidence again in that person. You can read and study 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 2 Peter and you can, you can learn the possibility of that happening in your life. So when, the, when it's all said and done, whether you've betrayed somebody else or whether you have been betrayed by somebody else, the answer to the dilemma is the same. Run to Jesus. Jesus understands. And he can help the betrayed and the betrayer to find peace, forgiveness, friendship, companionship. It can be made as if it had never happened. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the blood of Christ. That's the power of forgiveness. That's the power of God changing our lives. Flee to Jesus. He has the ability to fix the horrendous problem of betrayal.